1: to the screen, Actors Guild strike. Ryan, how are you? How is LA?
0: LA's good, we're not being toasted anymore. Just lightly roasted.
1: That's good, I mean, overdoing things is a little bit too much.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Reppin'. I'm Evelyn, your host. Throughout this series, I've had some truly engaging conversations about identity, belonging, acceptance, and how these aspects directly influence the opportunities we are given or denied. And you know what? These issues aren't limited to people of color or people in underrepresented communities because they affect every human being. I mean, after all, who doesn't want to be seen or accepted Now in the past, I've had guests come and open up about their experiences as mixed race individuals. And today, I'm gonna delve into a less commonly discussed aspect. What happens when two backgrounds combine in unique ways that aren't typically explored, like being Blasian, which stands for being black and Asian. I'll explore the unique challenges with my guest that arise from this experience, I'm really excited to introduce my guest for today. He's a talented actor and content creator and influencer. He wholeheartedly embraces his biracial identity of being Blasian. He's going to share his personal experiences, the impact of societal messaging on his journey, and how finding his true voice and identity has empowered him. Not only does he create entertaining content, but he tackles crucial social issues like racism and biases, starting important dialogues to break down these harmful ideas. So come hang out with me and meet Ryan Alexander Holmes. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I was impressed by you since the day that we met working on a project. Thank you. I know a little bit about your background. Your mom is Chinese Mm -hmm. and your dad is black. Yeah. So you're mixed race, but tell me a little bit about what it was like for you growing up.
0: Oh, my God. Were you one of
1: the only mixed race kids? Like, what was that like for you?
0: I was one of the only mixed race kids in the neighborhood that I grew up in. I'm black and Chinese. First of all, there was no black people in my neighborhood. So didn't have any of that. But my neighborhood was like 50 percent Chinese, 50 percent white. So I did have Chinese people, but I didn't really feel accepted by them in a way that felt like I was one of them. I still had friends, you know, but.
1: That were mostly Black or Asian?
0: They were white and, bi- and white and Asian, but I always sort of felt this distance. And I didn't realize that there was a distance until I started running for a Black track club in the Black part of town. And those friendships that I formed there were very different. Very different.
1: Okay, tell me about that. I mean, it was,
0: first of all, it was a culture shock for me because I hadn't been around the Black community yet. I had a Black family that I would be around. My dad's side of the family lives in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. So I would spend a considerable amount of time there every year. And so I did have Black influence in my life, mm-hmm. but it was you know, once a year, twice a year. And I think I was also subject to an identity crisis because I'm like, oh, I realize that I'm the only one in my school. And so I turned to probably not the best avenues to sort of find my identity, especially like in the early 2000s. Okay. Black representation wasn't black representation now. You know, it was a no. lot of a lot of yeah. gang culture and the way that they portrayed us in the news was drug dealers and drug addicts mm. and they perpetuated that and so I really leaned into the gang kind of culture and wearing like baggy clothes and trying to find an identity as an outsider right. as opposed to just being like, yeah, I'm black. I'm just going to act from my core and be proud of my skin and be proud of my people. Not this one aspect.
1: But that was the only sort of messaging that we were receiving at that particular point, right? That's what I'm saying. As a kid in our formative years, you have no idea.
0: It was just me trying to copy what I thought was what black was from rap videos on MTV and BET. It wasn't until that I, I joined the black community through this track club that I really saw the Black community for what it really is, which is like, there's vast diversity in the Black community. That's the reality. Yeah, Not what I was seeing in the media that was being shoved down my throat. It was this Black community with all these colorful people that happened to be Black that liked all these different kinds of things, and they just accepted me. Or I felt a different kind of acceptance from them. I wasn't the Black kid. In my neighborhood, I was the Black kid. And they had the audacity, these white and Asian people I grew up with had the audacity to tell me how I needed to be Black and how I wasn't Black because I didn't wear baggy jeans, because I, I wasn't embracing basketball. It was interesting to feel those two different forces pushing me in different directions. And then there was this sort of ease that I had in the Black community because they weren't treating me like you need to act like the stereotype. They treated me however they treated me because it wasn't about me being black.
1: They were just treating you like Ryan, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, for the most part. I mean, I did come in with my acculturation in that neighborhood, and that was kind of weird to them too. <laughs> but it wasn't because I was black. It, wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with race. You know what I mean?
1: Right. So you talked a little bit about your black side, but what about your Asian side? Because, yeah, I mean, even mixed-wise, black-Asian mix is, I think, only recently, and correct me if, I, if you disagree, yeah. sort of come into light as a conversation. Because it's usually when you hear mixed race, it's usually black and white. So, black or, and Asian, or, yeah, I would yeah, imagine, yeah, yeah. had similar, different. I mean, tell me a little bit about that sort of juxtaposition for you.
0: Uh, I mean, it's only recently now that we're starting to voice our opinion on things. I didn't know any other black and Asian people until I was in grad school, which is crazy now that I think about it, because I have like this. Vast network of Black Asians I know now, because I talk about it all the time and I share my story all the time. But yeah, I I I was very very acculturated Asian, specifically Chinese, in my household with my mom and my grandma, my uncles and my cousins. We all grew up in LA together. Mm -hmm. But when I would step outside of the house, Mm -hmm. it's like that was just erased. People would just see me as Black, Latino, whatever they saw me as. They didn't see me as Asian. So what was that like for you? It was weird because I, I I grew up in the Chinese community. I would go to these Chinese buffets. I would go to these Chinese restaurants. And I still live in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And they were like, why is this black kid with you? Like they would actually ask that to my grandma and my mom.
1: Oh my God.
0: Or they wouldn't even think that I was related to them. So they would say sometimes racist things.
1: And you understood it.
0: Yeah, I understood it. Obviously my mom and grandma understood it. And yeah. they're like, that's my... Grandson. That's my son. What the hell are you talking about?
1: What was that like when you heard that, though?
0: It's kind of ironic.
1: It's kind of horrible.
0: I don't know. I kind of had blinders, or I never really took it personally as a kid. Okay. I don't know. It didn't really upset me, but I think it's because my mom and my dad made sure that I knew who I was and not to be affected by other people's racism, to be proud that I am fully both. That's how I was raised. So to hear that in my mind, I'm like, I kind of always thought it was funny.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm
0: just like, wow, like you're kind of dumb for that, to think that. (laughs) I would just think that in my head as a child, like, wow, that's really dumb of you to think that. I wouldn't say it out loud. Right. No, no. But it never like really penetrated my heart. I would always just be like, wow, that's racist. I had an understanding of what racism was, but not in a victim-y way, more in like, oh, you're the problem. That's how I was raised.
1: That's a testament to your parents.
0: Yeah.
1: I faced minimal racism and discrimination. I'm going to say I'm lucky that I haven't experienced the amount of racism and discrimination that many people have. But I think mm-hmm. any degree of discrimination and racism sucks. Yeah, but
0: any degree. Yeah.
1: Obviously, it's a testament to your parents in terms of how well they made you aware of this. Do you remember one instance that they imparted on you where it sort of cemented this recognizing as a kid? Like, do you know how many many adults still don't even understand? Yeah,
0: many times.
1: Share one moment that you remember your parents imparting their experience that it actually resonated with you.
0: First of all, my mom is a Chinese immigrant. She came to this country when she was 23, 24, went to an Ivy League school, didn't really know English very well, didn't have any friends, going to a you know, a PWI, predominantly white institution in the highest regard and had to figure it out by herself almost in this new world that she was in. And then my father was a black lawyer and broke a lot of barriers, especially in LA. He was the first member of the Jonathan Club, which is this prestigious club in, in downtown for businessmen and lawyers and executives. He was the first black member. And I think like the late 80s, So they were imparting that in me. If you can stand alone and you can know who you are, you can still be successful. And that will make you successful. Don't be afraid to stand alone and know who you are. I remember in elementary school when I transferred from South Carolina, came to my school and we were just playing soccer and he called me the N-word and said, my skin looks like poo. I remember hearing that and being like, once again, it didn't really hit me. Yet. I just kept playing soccer. And, you know, we got in a little scuffle, but I didn't pause to cry and be sad. I was just like, okay, I'm still working you on the soccer field. And right. a teacher heard that and dragged him off to the principal's office. And I told my dad what happened, not even in a way that was like, you will never believe what happened to me, dad. I just told him, I was like, yeah, I was on the field. And this guy called me an N-word and he was like, What? So he went to the school. I guess he threatened to like rain hellfire on them and sue them into oblivion and had a, like a private talk with the kid. Probably, I think, mm. talked to his parents, too. And then had a conversation with me telling me like the history of the N-word and how I'm not that and why he thought that he could tell me that. And look, I'm like nine or eight years old or something. This is like third grade. But I still remember those moments. So they did have a profound impact on me.
1: I think at nine, you may not realize the, the enormity of that N-word or what that N-word means or the history of it. Yeah, of course. But you obviously know it's derogatory, right?
0: Yeah. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz, and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: What I love is how you're using social media and your platform to have these snack-sized pieces of content that inform and address many social issues. Now, first off, Mm -hmm. let me just say this. I don't know if this is a generational thing. or I do not understand how you churn out as much content as you do (laughs) on a daily basis. I got to take some tips from you, my friend. (laughs)
0: Look, I don't either. I don't either. And you know what? I have friends who are also content creators and they make like five, six pieces of content a day and they're going hard every minute of every day.
1: I need to take some notes. But it's really great that you're using social media to inform. Obviously, the last few years, the world has, you know, gone a little crazy Mm -hmm. (laughs) in many different ways. Were you always this socially conscious? Not just in terms of race, but overall.
0: Yes, but I I didn't have the courage to share it and didn't think there was an audience for it. Okay. Once I started not caring if there was an audience for it, that's when I started sharing my true voice and really finding these moments, like the N-word moment when I was a kid and talking about that and really diving back into it as a kid and being like, what was going on in my life? I went to a a predominantly white school. I say it was 50% Asian, 50% white, but like all the teachers were white. The principal was white, all the leadership, um, the PTA, all white moms. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm like, hmm, that's really interesting. What kind of effect did that have on not just me, but all the people of color that went to that school? And I look back and I'm like, oh, I was getting in trouble for things that I didn't do. And I always felt like, what is, what's wrong? Why didn't you believe me? I'm telling you that I didn't do it, but you're saying that I did it. So I realized a lot of what I was doing as a kid was trying to appease, like, There's a reason they don't like me. I don't know what it is. And I didn't know what racism was. You know what I mean? And I didn't know what privilege was, but now I look back and I'm like, Hmm, Mm -hmm. I probably had something to do with the fact that I was the only black kid at that entire school. And then I think about moments like when my fourth grade teacher told me to stop studying black historical figures because black history month was over. She said that in in front of the whole class. (laughs) Actually, you
1: shared this uh, story on social media.
0: Yeah. Can you
1: walk me through that story and how it hit you at that moment? Let's kind of of unpack that a little bit more.
0: We had a a special day in fourth grade. We had to come in dressed as a historical figure in history, dressed as them, you know, almost like an acting exercise. Like you dress like them, you wear what they wear and try to speak like them to the chagrin of my teacher who cut my speech short because I was spitting facts. And there was a classmate that was late and she showed up later than everybody else did. And we hear a knock on the back of the door and she sort of like hurries in because she's late. She came in as Muhammad Ali, this white girl. And she had rubbed black shoe polish or black makeup on her. And it wasn't even like all on her face and her, her arms and her legs. And she was, you know, had boxing gloves on and red shorts. And immediately my teacher was like, she didn't make a big scene about it. She's like, oh, um, can you come to the... I'm just going to call her Chloe. That's not her name. Yeah. But hey, Chloe, can you come outside with me real fast? And we just didn't see Chloe again for the rest of the day. She came to school in blackface. Okay. And when I, th- I think about it, I'm like, mm-hmm. you didn't come to school by yourself. Someone <laughs> drove your ass to school. Was it your parents? Did they see you in this get up and they took you to school? Like, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Play Muhammad Ali,
1: little white girl. Hmm. So you got cut short because you were told Black History Month yeah, was over. Yeah, there's that too. Over.
0: There's that on that day. There's that too. So
1: when you're sitting there, like, how are you processing this? Like, what did it sort of tell you about society when you just got cut off? And then you're right, like a fourth grader didn't drive herself to school. So at what point did the parents go, oh, this is okay?
0: That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So this is the system, right? This is how I can view the system in the way that I do today because I'm just like, oh, you cut my Malcolm X speech short because why? Because th- this is not the history that you were taught. I also, also think that she wanted me to do MLK, but I refused. I said, no, I want to do Malcolm X because I, I want to explore him more because we don't get time to spend on him. And, you know, my dad talks a lot about him, so I'm, I'm going to do Malcolm X. Right. And then she ended up cutting my speech short. And then You know, the blackface situation and how that was handled, right? It's interesting that she doesn't get embarrassed in front of the whole class. Right. But time and time again, I keep getting embarrassed in front of the whole class. Why? Right. And I didn't think that it was race back then. Right. I just thought that there was something wrong with me. Right. Right. And so I look back and and a lot of what I'm doing today is reclaiming the power that they tried to strip away from me.
1: I think you're doing more than that, actually. You know, what's interesting is how insidious and pervasive racism is, right? Because it's not always overt. Yeah. Racism is so subtle sometimes that it is mm-hmm. overlooked as just sort of the norm. Yeah. Right? So, when did you sort of really kind of step into this content creator and deciding on a conscious level oh, to utilize social media to inform? Because You know, listen, I'm guilty of this, too. I love looking at dog videos, sharing pizza and stuff like that. But I do appreciate so much that you and people like you are out there creating content that has purpose. From all that I've known you and everything that I've seen, you embrace all cultures. When did you decide to use your own personal stories and utilize the outlets that exist today, like Instagram, to create something that's sorely missing?
0: I mean, it started with... BLM and Stop Asian Hate and how happy I was with the fact that everyone was marching in the streets for BLM and it was the most solidarity that I saw among all races when I went to those marches. And then Stop Asian Hate happens. But then I'm reading in these tri- Asian groups that I'm a part of all these racist comments about BLM and not just about BLM, about Black people in general, just generalizing the hell out of them. And then I'm just like, whoa, what? Right. Like, I went from a high, well, I went from a very low watching George Floyd and H.D. be murdered, and then to a high of all these people caring, almost feeling for the first time. Then to stop Asian hate happening, another low. And then Asian Americans, Korean, all of them coming together, which has never happened. But then another low with them saying that Black people are the enemy and we're evil. So for me, it was just an emotional roller coaster of several months, and I had so much to say. I knew where I stood because I was at the precipice of both these communities and I'm fully both. And I understand both. Yes. Not only am I Black and Asian, but I am involved in the Black community and I'm very involved in the Asian community. So I know the acculturation of both and what, how they think. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I need to do something or say something. And I think the first post that I made went viral. Was first of all, on Subtle Asian Traits and a lot of the Asian groups, because I was basically crying out hey, I'm Black and Asian, and the first racist experiences that I'd had came from my own people, you know, in my own community. And the way that a lot of the Asian community talks about Black people is racist, and we need to acknowledge that because it's just true. Things they say about Black people are not true. It comes from the lack of proximity. It comes from the conditioning that a lot of Chinese immigrants inherited when they came to this country that is founded on racism, founded on a racial hierarchy that puts landowning white men at the top, and it's still doing its job very well. It comes from that. And if you are ignoring me and dismissing my opinion, you're dismissing an opinion of a fellow Asian. And so you are racist. After saying all that, it went viral. I didn't even think I was going to get any support. I was just like, I need to say this. I'm so tired of swallowing my words and sort of repressing my feelings. And I'm just going to say it. And whatever the feedback is, I don't care. I just need to say it. And I was surprised, but like 95% was support. And then 5%, which, you know, when you get negativity, it feels like 90%, that 5% was, you know, racist people saying things about Black people or saying the N-word. One dude actually sent me a video of these black guys harassing this Asian business, this Asian woman. And he said, you're the type of bitch that wouldn't help out this Asian lady. I responded, I was like, yeah, I actually would because that's my community. My mom is Asian. I would absolutely help her. And I would absolutely help you if this was happening to, to you, even though you called me a bitch. And he didn't know what to say. Like, what did he think I was going to say? It's almost like a disease that these people have. I can have empathy and compassion for the fact that they've been conditioned to think that way. They probably never even interacted with a black person in a real way before. To hear me say that I would stand up for them blew their mind because they've been so conditioned to think that black people are evil and criminals and, you know, they're scared.
1: Now, this is an audio forum, so people can't see you. You look more black than Asian which is like so dumb to say for me, I think, because I know who you are.
0: But you can say that in terms of how people view me, right? That's not how I view myself.
1: No, of course not. I mean, your Chinese squat, Asian squat, (laughs) I can't even do it anymore. (laughs) When I saw that, I was like, Like, whoa, Asian squat, man, that (laughs) will prove you positive if you're the real deal or not, and I can't do it
0: anymore. Even to know what an Asian squat is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, how would
1: you describe that? You have to go all the way down and not fall over.
0: Heels down.
1: Flat footed. Yeah. Your ass not touching the ground and not yeah. falling over. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That is some skills. And you did it. <laughs> and you're a lot taller than I am, and I can't do it. <laughs> Through the eyes of society and the world, you pass first, primarily, as Black. So do you find that you face more racism as a Black person? And I think you're right. In general, there is racism that exists in the Asian culture. Yeah. yeah. Towards Blacks and other cultures as well. It's not. It's not exclusively Black. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's it's equal equal opportunity. Yeah, equal equal opportunity. And that's a cultural thing. And this is not a slight to my culture. I embrace my culture and I love being Chinese. But racism exists in every culture. One of the things that I try to look at is Mm -hmm. racism, discrimination, gender, orientation. You know, all of the labels and categories that we're placed in, I think we all need to start looking at what actually is versus a story that's being fed to us or, you know, trying to believe something that we hope is true. It's important that we see the ugliness, the beauty. We have to look at it for what it is. From your perspective, being that you have this vantage point of black and Asian, Mm -hmm. the world seeing you as a black person, do you find one community faces more racism than the other? How do you reconcile that?
0: Yeah, my personal experience has been to society I look black. Yeah, that's not how I see myself. I like to say that it's not that I don't look Asian. You've just never seen an Asian that looks like me before. Because the more diversity, the more that there is this racial, these racial mixtures, and yeah. people are interacting with each other, the more you'll see people like me, and the more you'll be like, oh yeah, that's a black and Asian man. It's just the lack of representation too. But I've sort of given up this comparing who faces more racism because black people don't want to hear that and asian people don't want to hear that yeah blasian people will understand when i talk in that way but which is worse or this oppression olympics never works in being a bridge it never does for me it's like look this happened to this community and this happened to this community you see how those are similar you see how you can come together because you've you face the same thing i like to say it in that kind of way
1: so what the hell do we have to do to get everybody else to see that because Discrimination is discrimination. Inequities of all kinds exists even between states. Yeah. What do you think that we can do to kind of get people to see that pretty much everyone, regardless of where you're from, your color, your race, your creed, can experience similar discrimination and inequities?
0: There has to be more positive interactions because New York is a little different than L.A. New York, you're bumping shoulders with all kinds of people all the time, (laughs) all the time. When I go to New York, I'm like, whoa, I look at my friends out there and I'm like, how is your friend group so diverse? In LA, it's like, oh, because I'm so used to bouncing around because in in my childhood, my parents made sure that I had a understanding of all the cultures here and made sure like I played for a soccer team. It was like all Mexican. I ran for a black track. It was all black. And I played in an Asian basketball league. I had such a culturally diverse experience growing up, but it is not the same of most LA people. Most like L.A. neighborhoods are like, that's the Mexican neighborhood, that's the Chinese neighborhood, that's the black neighborhood, and they don't interact with each other. So I think what's necessary is that they do interact with each other and they do interact in positive ways, because if they don't, they're subject to seeing each other in the way that we've been taught to see each other through our educational system, which is not diverse and is from a white perspective. Very much so, Yeah. right? I never learned any Asian American history other than, yeah. oh yeah, they uh, the Chinese people came here and they kind of helped build the railroad. Uh, anyway, let's talk about Teddy Roosevelt and the amazing things he did. And then, you know, the black experience. I didn't really learn true African American history. This white man, Abraham Lincoln, freed the slaves, hooray. And then MLK is great and let's move on. We didn't actually learn the truth of our people. And once we do, we'll feel that empowerment. There's two things. There is teaching us our history so we feel proud of who we are in this country and aren't striving towards whiteness subconsciously as a success point. And then once we feel proud of ourselves, we can also interact with other people of color from that place as opposed to I'm looking down on you or I'm jealous of you or I see you as an outsider. That's not me. We're in this country together. We came here. Some forced immigrants, some willingly. Mostly immigrants, regardless of forced or not. Yeah, mostly immigrants we are all outsiders. Why are we treating each other like this? I understand that you and I are outliers because we've taken the time to understand the truth. Mm-hmm. But I understand that a lot of people don't have that. You know, A lot of people don't have that. A lot of people are struggling to just make ends meet. And it's getting harder and harder as that wealth disparity increases. Right. So there's so, there's so many factors. And I have to remember that. And I have to have empathy for people Because if I don't, then I'll forget that the humanity of of the situation of people battling against this system, right? We're all fighting against the system and this ideology, especially people of color. And I have to remember that when I move forward and people ask me solutions. I do feel like I'm in a privileged situation to be able to investigate these ideas and to understand this empathy and this this compassion while others just don't have the time. And when you don't have the time... You're conditioned.
1: I think you also have to have the willingness to understand that you don't know anything.
0: And you just go with it.
1: If you go into a situation thinking you know it all and that your facts are real and absolute, well, and that's it. It's, it's not even a question of time. You're just unwilling to do it. True, too. As you've gone through using social media as a tool to educate, what has been some of the feedback that you've gotten? Was there a point in your process where you said, this is so great that I am Blasian.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't really feel that until like maybe a year or two ago.
1: Okay. Tell me about that. What was that moment?
0: I want to address something too. I always knew who I was. It was the letting go of proving it to other people.
1: Oh, tell me about that. Yeah.
0: And I still feel like I'm, I'm in a process of doing that. I'm well on my way, but like still, when people come at me and they're like, you don't know what it's like to be an Asian. Look at you. It's like, I, I do. I mean, in a different way than you, but you just totally erased my identity as an Asian. And I have to constantly realize that these people are trying to erase me. It's not that I don't face prejudice, especially for being Asian. I do, but I don't expect them to change. And it's not my goal or my duty to change them. But I will say to them what they just did and I'll move on.
1: How do you do that without being angry? Because it gets to a certain point sometimes where you're just exhausted.
0: What helps me a lot is just finding the humor in it. You know what I mean? And also the empathy and compassion, but also not letting that turn me into like a person who doesn't fight back. It's a constant balance. Sometimes I just need to be angry too.
1: I have to say, and I think I might have posted this on your, your feed. There is a point of exasperation with regard to that constant balance people are obviously shitting pickles right now because it was a black little Mm -hmm. mermaid, right? First of all, mermaids aren't real. Just got to say that. You made a post that can, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you showed pictures of Joseph Fiennes, who is a white British actor, being Michael Jackson. Oh my God, yeah. And then you showed a photo, which was an example of a horrible, stereotypic, cartoonish, and offensive, and I'm not easily offended, Mickey Rooney as an Asian character in the iconic film Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, yeah, of course. Shirley Temple as a black slave child.
0: Ridiculous. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It never ends, too, because people are never surprised by the things that people say. They come up with all kinds of excuses. They're like... Shirley Temple didn't know she was doing that. And it's like, that's not really the point. And I'm sure maybe that was true, but that's not the point here. Or like, you know, oh, these these examples were from like a hundred years ago. And it's like not really. So? Actually, none of them are from a hundred years ago. Literally none of them.
1: I mean, these are pretty contemporary pieces.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. All these excuses are just insane to me. And we wouldn't have be having these conversations, and we didn't have these conversations when it was the other way around. And they don't even know that.
1: It's amazing to me that people can't see. It's literally the same conversation. There are two sides of the same coin.
0: And it's like, what kind of mental gymnastics do you have to keep performing in your mind? Or
1: cherry picking like how this exact situation is right for this and not right for that. That is to me is like, I don't understand where that disconnect is.
0: Just let it go, dog. Just like realize it's wrong. I didn't say a word in that video. I just showed pictures (laughs) with my face. That was it. Right.
1: I think the thing that I love, and I think this is more universal, it, it goes beyond race, is your embrace of your own identity and being yourself. There's something that you posted that I wanted to read verbatim here. You said, really enjoy being myself. That shit is addictive. People want you to be who they want you to be. But what the hell does that have to do with you? Ask yourself, are your goals your own? Find what you want to do with your life because it's you that's living it. Where did this sense of self come from and what can you sort of pass on?
0: Well, I mean, look, I was set to be the businessman of the family and go work on Wall Street after graduating from undergrad with a business degree from Berkeley and go work on Wall Street to go get an MBA at like Harvard or Yale. That was my track. And that's what my family wanted for me. And that's what they conditioned me to do. But as soon as I moved to New York, I was like, I absolutely do not want to do this. I, 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 I hundred percent don't want to do this. What do I really want to do? I want to be an artist. Okay. What kind of artist? Mm -hmm. I really liked watching movies and I liked the way that actors could portray a role and make me feel and, you know, change my perspective or change me. So I started doing that from the brokest. I was the brokest I could possibly be in New York. Right, going from the promise of like hundred thousand dollars easy salary to not having any money and living on friends' couches, but allowing myself the freedom to experience art and watch plays and watch these crazy improv shows and watch people go to the nth degree in expressing whatever they wanted to express. The freedom of that. And yes, I was very depressed because I was broke and hungry all the time. But also I was so driven because I'm like, this is what I want to do. I have no idea how I'm going to make money doing it. No idea what the industry even is. Who do I talk to? How do I get in a movie? How do I act? I don't know anything. In that moment that I realized like that quote that you just read comes from that. There was a despair of like, I'm doing exactly what I don't want to do. And I know that. And then comes the despair with the freedom, though, of choosing not to do that and trying to find your path and then deciding that this is the path, but I have no idea what I'm doing.
1: That's wonderful and terrifying at the same time.
0: So I literally just got at a point where I just couldn't take it anymore. I was living somebody else's dream. I love my parents. Look, they had the best interest in mind for me. They didn't want me to struggle and they put me in a position where I didn't have to. They literally did that for me and I love them for it, but that wasn't my path. So I had to find and choose my own path. And I think leaving LA was the best thing that I could ever do because I had to get away from my support system in order to decide this is what I want to do with my life. And there's no turning back. There's no like crying on my mom's shoulder and my dad's shoulder and my brother's shoulder and saying like, I was so stupid. Why did I think that I could do this? No, I gave myself no way out. I had to pursue what I wanted to do. And also sitting at that desk every day, checking the clock, doing work for somebody else's dream and getting money and exchanging for who and for what. I couldn't do it.
1: So for people that are struggling with just kind of being themselves and accepting others for who they are, be it skin color, race, gender, the position in society that we're judged by, you know, the job that you hold tells the story of quote-unquote who you are, right? And how you're treated. You are working, I think, on a daily basis to make those, to connect those dots. And you celebrate that about yourself and and others. So what is your advice to others that have not learned to accept themselves, be themselves, and accept others?
0: Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's really actually hard to accept really who you are because you have to accept the thorns and the imperfections and the insecurities. I am constantly accepting that. And also I have a family that tells me the truth, (laughs) which is like actually a blessing. I can't take it for very long. Honestly, like my brother, he straight up tells me the truth. He's like, "What, what do you think you're speaking right now? Like you're perfect. That's how I feel. And I'm like, okay, where is that coming from? Because this person that I love and knows me probably better than anybody else in the world. I don't know. We had this conversation where he really put something in perspective for me. He asked me, do you think you're better than anyone else? And I was like, of course I don't. Like, well, that conversation that we previously were having, I got those vibes from you as if you were speaking like you were better than that person. And I was like, really? You know, and I had to investigate that. There are moments maybe where I do come across that way, but like, I don't think I'm better than anyone else. What he was getting at is like, listen, Mm -hmm. constantly reinvestigate you saying that because are you you really giving that all the time? There are moments where maybe sometimes, like I am this person who treats everybody equally Mm -hmm. all the time, but I'm not. And I do have imperfections and there's always something to work on all the time.
1: Whether you have your position, your platform or not, Ryan... What do you celebrate about the duality of your identity, life, culture, and also what do you think we need to all do or can do to hopefully improve the situation we're in and not to be so disconnected from ourselves and each other?
0: I would say stop relying on other people to tell you who you are. Stop relying on other people to tell you who other people are, to find out for yourself. Find out for your goddamn self. You have to step outside of your comfort zone in terms of how you receive your information and who you s- receive it from and sort of diversify that.
1: Yeah, it is so important to look beyond what you're familiar with to get information and resources and to learn. When you go and look back as at yourself as a kid, um, going from that point to now, what do you celebrate about your journey and being a mix of Black and Asian
0: yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't be any happier. I'm so happy that I'm black. I'm so happy that I'm Asian. And it's a never ending source of joy and exploration and discovery and, and this history that also that was never taught to me from the system. You know, my parents did the best job they could teach me, but I'm constantly learning more and I'm constantly meeting community members in both communities, black and Asian. And also understanding that there is a Blasian community and, and finding the self-discovery within those three communities as well. The joy when you find someone who understands you is priceless.
1: That's so awesome. I love that. So Ryan, I'm going to have to ask you to sign us off. Let me know who you are and what you represent.
0: My name is Ryan Alexander Holmes. An <laughs> is my Chinese name. And I represent the universal joy of constant self-discovery
1: thank you to ryan alexander holmes for his time for sharing his insights with us and for reminding all of us we should not only celebrate our authentic selves culture and backgrounds but to go out in the world and do what you can to create the positive change we all need definitely go check out what ryan is doing and the content he's creating I'll have all of his social links in the episode description for you. Now, again, thank you to the listeners for your support. Honestly, your time and listenership means the world. These conversations are about all of us, and I want you to join in. So let me know your thoughts. If you have any questions for me, you can reach me at Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast and go check out my YouTube page. You're going to see some bonus content there. And you can always find me on my website at reppin.tv. So email me and share your thoughts. Now, if you enjoyed this conversation, check out who else has been here on Reppin. And please support the show by sharing, subscribing, downloading, and leave a review. It's easy. So are there any Shadowhunter or Burden of Truth fans out there? Well, I've got actress, activist, and one of my favorite people, Nicola Carai Demude. She is coming back to guest, for a very special two-part episode. Something that happened 10 years ago, it was an incident where it was an all-white cast except for me, and it was supposed to have taken place in Britain in 18-something. But You know, there's a very particular aesthetic. And after one of the performances, the designer came in to our dressing room, and it was me and these two white women. And she said, Nicola, I watched the show tonight. You're looking a little dark from the audience. Can you buy like some whiter foundation?
0: so that you don't look so dark from the audience. Hi, this is Nicola Caray-Demude on Reppin'. It's where we have conversations that create change.
1: That's coming up next. Thank you to my ride or die team, Nelson Pinero and Gracie Kong. Reppin' is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Thank you again, everyone. I'll see you next time. Until then, stand up and represent. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs.
0: And I am Kristen Russo.
1: And together, we run Buffering, a rewatch adventure, a family of podcasts moving through our favorite 90s genre television.
0: If you're a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, well, great news for you. Our very first podcast adventure took us through all seven seasons of the series. We covered it spoiler-free, episode by episode. For those of you who want to start the show for the first time, you can find that podcast pretty easily. It's called Buffering the Vampire Slayer.
1: Inside that podcast, you'll also find an original song that pairs with each glorious episode of Buffy and original character jingles for so many of our Buffy favorites.
0: Buffering has been praised in places like Time, Esquire, Paste Magazine, and the New York Times, and we've chatted with dozens of cast members, writers, directors, and fans along the way. Come hang out and re-watch some of your favorite television with us and a wonderful community of listeners.
1: Learn more at BufferingCast.com or find us on socials at BufferingCast.